0: Welcome to another episode of the conversation, where TYT brings you interviews with political and cultural thought leaders. I'm excited to be joined this evening by Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna represents the California 17th congressional district, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, and is serving his second term. He's also he also sits on the House Budget, Armed Services, and Oversight Reform committees, and is the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congressman Khanna, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be on.
0: It's definitely our pleasure. Uh, let's talk about the races that just happened Tuesday night. Uh, Corey Bush uh, with the upset—well, uh, depending on the, your perspective—the upset of the um, of the dynasty there, along with Rashida Talib winning again. Um, this this seems like could be a, a great victory for progressives in general. What are your thoughts on those victories?
1: Well, it's very impressive. I'm particularly impressed with Corey Bush uh, as she overcame. Uh, health issues, she overcame a loss in the last cycle. She showed incredible perseverance, she has an incredible story. And I think it's a a, a sign that the progressive movement uh, is ascendant uh, uh, at the congressional level. I mean, even though we didn't win the presidency, uh, the the nomination, I mean, Bernie came so close until everyone dropped out. And it shows that the energy is still with the progressive side. And same thing with Rashida Tlaib. I mean, the New York Times is saying it's going to be a close race. She's in trouble, and she won almost two to one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who wanted to count her out because she had a well-funded opponent, and particularly because of the incident where she booed Hillary Clinton. But I think there's there's a place for these outspoken progressives now, and it seems like that that's a turning of the tide. Do you feel like the reinforcements have come in?
1: I do. I mean, I, more than reinforcement, some of the, the new leaders I think are coming in. I mean, I think these are uh, bold voices. They're willing to the question uh, the status quo I and mean, question failed policies. I mean, sometimes we forget the stakes, the fact that we're still in Afghanistan, women and children and our troops are dying. The fact that we're increasing military budgets, that's a consequence to, to global peace and, and life and death decisions. The fact that millions of people don't have health care. Uh, when they lose their jobs, that's that that's a, about death and illness and bankruptcy. So people who are coming in are saying, uh, yes, we understand the value of civility and we understand the value of talking uh, uh, in a way that gets uh, along with colleagues, but uh, we're not going to do that at the expense of justice. And our first uh, uh, mission is to stand up for justice, even if that's unpleasant and provocative. And I respect that. I admire that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you've been in Congress for a few years now, and I'm curious as a, a person on the outside who regularly criticizes everybody, um, <laughs> I, everyone who's a politician. My question I, to you is Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Well, before I went on the show, I said, wh- wh- When has he criticized me? And I said, <laughs> I'm fine with that because I think we all, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. And I, I think that's great what you do because you have to hold all of us accountable. That's the yeah. heart of democracy.
0: Yeah, I, I I criticize so much. I honestly don't know if I got it around to you, Congressman Khan. <laughs> Con.
1: <laughs> but but I'm not, but not a big enough fish yet. <laughs>
0: no, no, you do definitely are, and and I think you're the the perfect person to answer this question. You know, we on the outside we have these bright-eyed ambitions about what can be done in Congress, right? We we have an unfiltered view, but from the inside, it seems like on the outside it seems as though when Congress people get up there, there's a sort of gravity, there's a weight that that pulls them ever so slightly from their progressivism and and then leads them to voting for the continuation and the expansion of the military industrial complex. Could you tell us briefly or take as much time as you need, what goes on when a progressive gets there and then they are confronted with all of those institutional forces? What is that like?
1: Yeah. No, well, I, I appreciate your mentioning the military. I mean, uh, we worked to have a 10% cut in the military budget. We couldn't get Uh, Enough Democrats to support that. Now let's put that in context. President Obama left the military at 600 billion. This would have taken the military budget to 670 billion, meaning 70 billion more than where Obama left it, which would be a 10 percent cut. And yet you had Democrats saying, "No, we've got to vote for the Trump uh, uh, budget increases." I think there's a fear that people will be seen as soft on national security. Uh, I think there's a fear that uh, uh, lobbyist interests will come uh, against. uh, people on on television. But I think the bigger issue and the genuine dilemma that progressives often face is uh, effectiveness. I mean, right now, uh, we don't have the numbers to uh, be in leadership where we can get a vote on Medicare for all, where we can get a vote on uh, the the right type of defense uh, cuts. And so uh, people say, okay, if we don't make this compromise, are we gonna be totally shut out? And it's that constant balancing. uh, that. I've engaged in that everyone is engaged in because you you've got to be effective. So what's the solution? Uh, the solution is to send us more progressives and uh, to, to ultimately to elect progressives uh, into leadership. I mean I think we need to have uh, a few progressives like a Pramila Jayapal or others in in leadership.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely and there are some dynamic progressives that have come and that are there now. You tweeted out earlier today at least 5.4 million Americans have lost their health care. 26 million Americans are going hungry because they can't afford enough food. 28 million Americans are at the risk of losing their homes. This is an emergency. Congress must pass a bold relief package now. The short question is, what's the holdup? But I guess the more in depth question is why? Why is there a hold up?
1: Well, the holdup is uh, McConnell and, and the White House, I mean, that's the, the, the truth of the matter. Uh, you, you know, They wanna give $200 a week to, to people, and that, that you can't pay the bills with $200 a week. So there's no way Democrats can sign off on that. And uh, in this case, I actually do give the speaker credit for, for holding the line and trying to get the number higher. Now, uh, some of us in the Progressive Caucus said, no, this isn't enough, even the House bill. We gotta give $2,000 a month. I mean, if the Fed could find money to buy junk bonds from corporations. How can we not find the money to give Americans uh, a a check? And I'm for a rent moratorium, but a rent moratorium actually hurts some of the small business landlords. I'd rather that we give people 2000 bucks uh, so that they can pay the rent. And so they can pay their expenses uh, and that we're helping Main Street, we're helping communities uh, instead of uh, just bailing out corporations. So uh, the the holdup is McConnell and Trump in this case, but uh, there was a resistance still in this, te- in this town to the type of bold policies of getting everyone monthly checks uh, that we needed.
0: And and allow me to just follow up on that a little bit. In, in terms of the why, I mean, we, we understand Mitch McConnell, we understand the role that Republicans play. I, I guess my question is, is does the leadership of the Democratic Party understand what they're up against? Because it seems as though we engage in politics as usual. It's the, it's the standard kind of politics that are happening right now from both sides, quite frankly, in terms of leadership. But we're facing a crisis like we've never faced before. Like this is, it's not all that you can look at a moment and understand that this is a historical moment. This is a turning point in the country. And yet our leaders seem to be engaging in politics as usual. So so when I ask the question why, I, I guess I want to cut to the core of the thinking of the leadership on the left as well as well, leadership in the Democratic Party, as well as the leadership and their perspective of the leadership on the right.
1: Well, I don't think we've grappled enough with the the, the moment we're in, the crisis we have in terms of the health care. Uh, issues and on on racial justice. Uh, if, if we did, we'd be leading uh, in our Democratic platform calling for Medicare for all. We'd be leading uh, in the Democratic platform uh, with saying let's get rid of qualified immunity for police officers and let's get rid of uh, the current standard of force, which is uh, unique in the entire Western of Western democracies. I mean, force should be a last resort when necessary, not when an officer thinks it's reasonable. So uh, I guess where I blame uh, uh, our, our party legitimately is that we're not being bold enough, vocal enough. I think if we were out there fighting and made it clear that we stand for these things, and then we, and then people saw that really, okay, we're not getting anywhere because McConnell is blocking it and our only choice was to compromise so we could get some money to the pockets of people, uh, they'd be more understanding. But I think where they get frustrated is they don't see our moral clarity. And fight for what really is
0: needed. With the time that we have left, I'd like for you to sort of address progressives in a broad sense. What would you like progressives online, social media, organizers, the organizations across the country? What would you like them to know in terms of the fight that the Progressive Caucus and the various members that are progressive that you have? Tell us what you would like us to know about the fight that's ongoing as a progressive in Congress.
1: The progressives are unified on some very simple points. One, that healthcare shouldn't be tied to your job. We need to expand Medicare to everyone and that uh, that ought to be part of the Powdy platform like it was until 1980. Second, that we gotta get out of these endless wars. Third, that we need a strategic cut in our military budget and not have more funding of defense contractors. Fourth, that we need livable wages, family supporting wages for people. Uh, And then we need massive investment in childhood education, uh, childcare, uh, and public college of vocational education. There's, that's the core of the agenda. Now the question is, uh, how can we help make sure that our party leadership uh, pushes for those things? Because so I think they're wildly popular with our base.
0: Yeah, yeah. Rep- uh, Representative Khanna, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for your voice. I mean, I think it's really important what you're doing. I uh, listen to your stuff and see <laughs> your tweets here and there. So I I don't, appreciate it, and
0: I don't I, I listen too closely.
1: You criticize me because I, I, I think we need independent media voices yeah. and I, pushing on on these issues. I mean, otherwise, we're never going to make progress.
0: Absolutely, we will definitely hold you to that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank so. you. Welcome back to the conversation. I am Benjamin Dixon and I am excited to be joined by none other than Professor Anthea Butler. She's associate professor of religious studies and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a historian of African American and American religion. Professor, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Oh, Thanks for having me, glad to be here.
0: Uh, no, the pleasure is honestly mine, like I was saying offline, like I've, I have followed your work for many, many years. My background, I came out of the black church, uh, the liberation gospel. Um, my first book was about church work, and so obviously that church and politics. So obviously that brought me into your orbit, into your work. Could you just give us a brief snapshot for people who may not know what you do? Tell us about what you do and why it's so important.
2: Well, what I do and what I teach is I teach about the African American religion about the black church specifically. Um, I'm about to teach classes fall on religion from civil rights to black lives matter. Uh, The person I trained with actually is a King scholar. So people don't know that a lot about me, but I'm also a historian. I work mostly on 19th and 20th century American religion and African American religious history. But I also have an interest too in African religion. So that's been an important part for me and a couple years ago I went to Nigeria to study prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's That's a whole other (laughs) ballgame.
0: We could talk about the differences in the prosperity gospel and um, liberation theology, particularly as it pertains to politics, right? This isn't just a conversation about differences in theological, or rather theological differences. This really has implications in terms of politics and how we view politics and the role of government. And how the government are are working and serving the least of these. Can you help the audience understand why that distinction, liberation versus uh, prosperity really matters, especially in 2020?
2: It matters a lot because liberation gospel talks about you know feeding the poor, having equal rights, being just, thinking about the things that Jesus actually did instead of making up things that Jesus did. You know, feeding the five thousand, all of that kind of stuff, and also come out of the Catholic tradition, a preferential option for the poor. That means, in other words, when we start to talk about who should get money, who should be fed, who should be taken care of, we want to make sure that people have food. We want to make sure that they have medical care. We want to take care of the whole person. It's not just about abortion, right? Because right. this is the kind of thing you hear about. So, this liberation gospel is about giving things to people and not to be ashamed of being poor. The prosperity gospel, on the other hand, says, you know, God wants you to be rich. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't rich, you aren't blessed. And therefore, they don't care about the poor. If you're poor and you go to a prosperity gospel church, they're gonna say that God did not bless you. They're going to look at you askew and tell you that there's something wrong in your life and you must have sin. Mm-hmm. And the more prosperous you are, or as I like to say, the more you thieving from people who don't have money, that means that you are blessed. And God must be high, you must be blessed and highly favored as people like to say all the time, which I hate that phrase, by the way. <laughs>
0: I, I often say I'm blessed and highly favored, but I usually say it tongue in cheek I know. <laughs> for that exact for that exact reason. So these distinctions really matter, and and with the population of Christians in this country, um, the whether or not God exists or the uh, or any of those questions kind of become immaterial when we talk about electoral politics, especially when we talk about evangelicals, Donald Trump, the power of the evangelical movement, the rise of the evangelical movement of Jerry Falwell, the Moral Majority, and the impact that they have had. You know, could you draw a line very quickly quickly to help people understand how it is that there's just two totally different vantage points between how someone like you or myself views the role of Christianity or faith in politics and evangelicals and how they can lead themselves to vote for somebody like Donald Trump.
2: Well, basically I can sum it up in one word, racism. (laughs) Racism is the key. And this is the thing that nobody wants to talk about with evangelicals because they just all go, why are they like Donald Trump so much? It's about race. Whether we're talking about the 1950s and the Billy Graham, and the 1970s with Jerry Falwell, I mean, most people forget that Jerry Falwell was for apartheid. He yeah. didn't want to do anything about South Africa in the 80s. Whether we're talking about you know George Bush and capacity conservatism and handing out money to black churches, but not expecting to do anything for them besides hand out money to pre- preachers, to when we get to Donald Trump, who has surrounded himself with I call them prosperity pimps or prosperity preachers, who are basically the D-list, not the A-list. Of evangelicals, yeah, right. <laughs> so um, he surrounded himself with all those, and basically what they're doing is, you know, serving as a prop, but also serving to get their needs met in the midst of getting Trump's needs met.
0: Mm. And and so the impact really resonates, right? I, I often think the, about how uh, our fight as African Americans, uh, particularly, really intersects on this religious issue, because oftentimes I think of it in terms of they would lynch us on Saturday night and then be in Sunday school on Sunday morning. And so that history kind of weighs on us. But could you speak in terms of just as a black woman in terms of this political structure that is rooted in white Christian men who don't
2: see the faith the same way that you see it? Well, it's interesting that you bring up lynching on Saturday night because actually then they lynched on Sunday mornings too. Mm -hmm. And my forthcoming book, which is called White Evangelical Racism, The Politics and Morality in America. I talk about this one particular scene where it's from Methodist Episcopal Church in Oxford, Mississippi, where a man is accused of raping a white woman. It's on a Sunday, they put him in the middle of the town square. And when they decide that they should lynch him, they say, "Oh, it's Sunday, we shouldn't do this in the town square, we should lynch him behind the church. And so they take him behind the church and lynch him. So this marriage begins very early. And so when we start to talk about this, you have to bring up that history through the 1950s, where you see the marriage of Billy Graham with Eisenhower. And then with other people. And then you see how this whole thing has buried itself with it. And they just turned to republicanism in the 70s. And that's where the big shift begins, where we have evangelicals marrying themselves to the Republican Party and forgetting about their Bibles.
0: Mm. As a person of faith, um, I know you you view um, or rather you see what's happening politically, and from your writings and your teachings, I can see that it's almost it's almost a thorn in your side. um, How Christianity is portrayed throughout this country? I really want to ask, though, in terms of like a pluralistic society, in terms of people who aren't uh, people of faith, people are agnostic or they are atheists. How does how does your vantage point, particularly like liberation theology, how does it create a society or contribute to society that is um, more pluralistic and not so much insisting on creating a government or a theocracy. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think when we talk about liberation theology, there are needs for the whole person. We don't think about just what we should do for a group of people to try to get judges or something. What you're thinking about doing if you're a, you know, a Christian like I am, a liberal Christian, basically saying here are the things that we can meet on. I just had a, a whole big thing a couple of weeks ago with black atheists out of Atlanta. And that was a really great talk because I'm not afraid of atheists or agnostics. As a matter of fact, I like them because they usually tend to talk about religion more intelligently than <laughs> the people who are religious, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. but what I see is that these humanistic ideas that people who are agnostic or atheists think about doing are also the same kinds of ideals and things that we can think about if we are thinking and embracing liberation theology. We are talking about, you know, the poor, we're talking about getting health care, we're talking about education, we're talking about things that everybody needs to live in a society. And we're not trying to close off the doors to anyone in that society. Everyone should be free to worship the way that they want if we take what the founders said when they wrote the constitution. Now, unfortunately, we're not there today. This is turning into a Christian theocracy, and that is a huge problem.
0: Yeah, how do you feel I often some of my biggest supporters are atheists, right? I know that sounds like some of my best friends are black, but it's true. Some of my biggest supporters yeah. have been with me for the longest and they're atheists and I even have some people from the Church of Satan who, are, who actually support my show on a regular basis. How do you feel as a person in this space? Your allies are oftentimes not Christian at all, but then there is like this, this, this feeling that I have, like when, when, when something happens and a and a Christian is at the center of it. Uh, the doctor who just came out and said that uh, hydroxychloroquine was the cure. Uh, the the uh, I forgot her name, the black doctor. But wh- yes. how do you feel about being a Christian in this space when we have such poor representation of Christianity on all around us?
2: Well, first of all, I don't feel like that woman who uh, is talking about uh, demon sperm and everything else represents <laughs> me. So I didn't know. I know you don't want to go. (laughs) There, but I'm going to go there today because you know clearly there's not enough time for us to get any demons burned while there's coronavirus. But here, let me say this real quick. I don't, you know, I look at that as an opportunity to be able to dispute these kinds of forms of Christianity and be able to say this is wrong. I know you believe the way that you do, and there's a whole history about why she's saying what she's saying. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, you are a poor representative of Jesus Christ if you claim to represent him that is that you know that's kind of my take on it so i don't feel bad about it what i feel is that this is a part this is a time for me to be able to educate people about where that's wrong where her thinking is invalid and i don't even have to do that on theological grounds i could just do it on mental grounds <laughs>
0: And that's why I've been following your work for so long. You, you got to slide in the, those, those points that are cut right to the core of the matter. We only have a few more moments, moments here, but speak to the future, right? You mentioned like the humanist view of a lot of atheists and agnostics. But speak in terms of like a, a, a future, um, not grounded in faith so much, but informed by your faith.
2: I think that future informed by faith is one that we start to care for each other. If coronavirus is not teaching us anything right now is two things. One is, is that you have to take care of your neighbor, you know, as you take care of yourself, and that's to wear a mask, right? But the second part I think is is actually even more important is that we we are just crossing huge thresholds in terms of death in the last six months, and so I think this whole issue of faith is really going to change because people have not been able to grieve the way they need to grieve, they've not been able to do what they need to do, and I think that this is going to really either bring people closer to some kind of faith, no matter what they believe, or they're going to Turn away from it. And we'll have to deal with some different kind of forms of that, especially in the black church where people are so used to gathering together. And they are unable to because of this virus, because it's killing us.
0: Yes, Professor Anthea Butler, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for, for joining me, I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you.